0: at tmobile.com now. Hey guys, back to the playground again, huh?
2: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh. <laughs>
0: ah, love that. A
2: redwood forest would be cool. I'm in.
0: Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tanner girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the
2: ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
3: From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. As loyal listeners know, this fall on Deep Background, we ran a mini-series called Deep Bench about how a club for lawyers called the Federalist Society became the most powerful legal organization in the country. My producers and I have turned this series into an audiobook called Takeover, How a Conservative Student Club Captured the Supreme Court. You can get it on Pushkin's website, pushkin.fm, or on Audible, or wherever you get your audiobooks. The Federal Society was started 35 years ago, roughly, after a successful, surprising conference of conservative law students at Yale University. I tell you all about it in the audiobook. To celebrate the audiobook's release today, I'm speaking to Eugene Meyer, the president and CEO of the Federalist Society. Gene has been deeply involved with the Federalist Society literally since it came into existence, as you will hear in our conversation. And he is uniquely well-placed To talk about the trajectory of the institution in the past and into the future. Gene, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really grateful to you. I want to start by asking you about your own experience with the Federalist Society. I know you've been working with the organization in one capacity or another all the way up to president and CEO for 30 years or so. How did you get started with the Federalists?
1: Well, it's really 35 years, and it's, you know, these young law students started this thing. I was a couple of years older, and they one day asked me, gee, uh, as we're leaving school, we want to have somebody running this full-time just out of college, you, you know, because we're going to be involved, but we've got our careers we're starting. Do you have any ideas? And I said, I think you're making a mistake. I think you want someone just a little bit more experienced. And they said, okay, that makes sense. Do you have any ideas? I suggested someone to them. They interviewed him. They made him an offer, and uh, they came back to me and said, well, it was a good idea, and we made the guy an offer, but he ended up turning us down for something else. Do you have any other ideas? At which point I became, and only some of your listeners will get this, but at this point I became Dick Cheney.
3: That's exactly where I was going. So, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: And, and uh, you know, that's where I started. I was essentially the CEO from the beginning, because it was one person in office, but I didn't know, I wasn't a lawyer, I didn't know a lot about law. I didn't know political philosophy. I was very interested in things of that sort, and everything else kind of got picked up along the way.
3: So you, didn't, you weren't at the so-called uh, conservative lawyers' Woodstock, the first Federalist Society convention in New Haven. How did you happen to know these folks? Did you know them from conservative politics or from, from political from philosophy? A couple of them from college. I see. And where did you go to college with them?
1: Uh, to Yale. And actually, the very funny thing is I was at the first symposium
3: Ah, there I was you go. There,
1: frankly, more as a warm body. <laughs> I was friends with them. They needed, they wanted attendance. I went, um, but I w- it wasn't out of you know. I mean, I wasn't uninterested, but it wasn't something I would have gone to in the
3: abstract. And what had you studied? Yeah, did you study political philosophy?
1: I had to, some political philosophy, also some history.
3: Tell me, with that arc of history in mind, really having been there from the very, very beginning, what does the Federalist Society mean to you? today?
1: I'm going to take a brief detour to say I definitely enjoyed very much listening to your book, and uh, I do have a couple thoughts about it, but they'll come up in the course of our conversation.
3: Good. I'm looking forward to hearing them, very much so.
1: I think there are a lot of different ways to answer that question, but one thing I think I would say is I think one key part of the federal side from the beginning has been a genuine belief that debate and discussion lead ultimately to better public policy. That while there are all kinds of other ways people form their ideas, reason and serious discussion is really, really helpful, both because you test your ideas against others, and hopefully you learn from what they say and they learn from what you say. Um, This is sort of old standard cliche, but I think nonetheless true. And I think to me, the federal side is about getting very important views about the law heard at a time when in general except for our activities many of those views have not been heard.
3: I have to say what you're saying does resonate strongly for me in that at every Federalist Society event that I've been to or participated in and there have been scores and maybe more than a hundred over the course of you know my time as a lawyer and law professor there is always an emphasis on multiple points of view being represented and often I'm invited to speak and you know that already is a sign of different points of view because my views often not always but often are really divergent from those of federal society members so what you're saying resonates at the same time you can easily imagine starting an organization that was kind of a club for the discussion of legal ideas that didn't begin with certain propositions about the right way to interpret the law the right way to interpret the constitution and that didn't describe itself as an organization that isn't only for conservatives and libertarians, but that mentions conservatives and libertarians mm-hmm. in its self-description. So I think there might be some listeners who say, well, that's, that's a great way to talk about one aspect of the federal society, but surely they would say it's slightly hiding the ball with respect to the conclusions that you and other federal society members hope people will reach when they have heard different points of view. That is, you want people to hear different points of view and then adopt something within the family of views that are popular within the organization. Would that be fair?
1: It's reasonably fair. I mean, I I, I like to think we're prepared to change our views. What's the line? When I get new facts, that contradict my views. I change them. What do you do, sir? What's the classic line? Good.
3: And we're, we're going to come to that. We're going to come to changing views, too. So that's great. Yeah, go so, ho- ahead.
1: Hopefully. But, but in, in general, yeah. And one of the things I think would be true not only of us, but of almost any group is that The world doesn't operate completely in abstracts. Uh, One of the reasons you get motivated to uh, have discussions is because you think your ideas are important and are good, and you do want to test them against others, and, and in general persuade others, but at the same time be aware you might be persuaded. If you don't start out with some kind of ideas about what you think the law should be or whatever, you probably wouldn't be motivated to really start something like this, although perhaps you would. But I'd say empirically there'd be tremendous opening for an organization that was committed to debate and discussion of ideas that was genuinely agnostic completely about what it believed. And I don't know of any like that, really. it's probably not a coincidence. I mean, even something like science, which is in theory just trying to find the truth. Most of the time, people get involved in pursuing a scientific theory because they believe that theory is going to turn out to be correct. Sometimes they find it's false and they correct themselves.
3: Gene, every organization just about that organizes people for action, at least in part, deals with the question of how much of your time are you spending trying to convert the unconverted? And how much of your time are you spending trying to build group agreement and solidarity among people who are roughly like-minded? And I think the Federal Society does both of those things. How do you think about the balance between those two? And the reason I ask you that is that many outside observers, myself included, think of the success of the Federalist Society in transforming the federal judiciary as to a large extent the product of the second, the group solidarity, rather than the first, where you go out and try to preach to the unconverted. Yeah.
1: I mean, I suppose in any organization, there's some of both. I guess what I would say on that a little bit is that I I think it's more, in some ways even more complicated than what you're saying, but what made possible a lot of the sort of more practical results you're talking about is some degree of success in the former. Having the ideas become a key part of the discussion. You would not have a lot of people who are basically, philosophy is basically an originalist on the bench if there weren't people who had come to believe in that basic philosophy.
3: That's certainly true. You need a core number of people who hold that view. I mean, if you go to an American law school still to this day. I mean, one of the stated goals of the Federal Society from the beginning was to increase intellectual diversity within American law schools. I would say that's one of the only goals of the Federal Society that's had only really moderate success. <laughs> right. I mean, there are, there are, of course, professors who are originalists and textualists at American law schools more than there were 35 years ago, but they're nothing like a majority. What you do have are a lot of really smart students graduating from those schools at the top of their classes, who then go on, having been members of the Federalist Society, clerk for judges who are either loosely or less loosely affiliated with the Federalist Society, and end up clerking for the Supreme Court, and then a few years down the road, end up as judges and now as justices themselves. And I mean, the extraordinary thing, at least for my generation, over the the four years of the Trump administration vis-a-vis the Federalist Society, is just how many of the really smart, really elite Federalist society conservatives in my generational cohort ended up on the federal bench and on the Supreme Court. I mean, that is extraordinarily striking. And that's got to be a product in part. You have to have them, but they also have to know each other and be in solidarity with each other.
1: I think that one of the things is a lot of our events, including our, our national convention, but also including many, many other events around the country, help facilitate people getting to know each other. That is key in any endeavor. You you know, if you have one really smart person working in isolation, they're very unlikely to be anywhere near as productive as they will be if you have four or five of them in sort of in a group working together and feeding off of each other.
3: I want to ask about the National Convention. One of the episodes in the podcast, which became a chapter in the book, focuses on the story of Randy Barnett, a law professor at Georgetown, who came up with an idea for the unconstitutionality of the individual mandate provision of the Affordable Care Act in conversation with people in the hallway Mm -hmm. at the Mayflower Hotel at your big national convention and then worked with people affiliated with the organization to help make that idea broadly known. And then ultimately, five justices of the Supreme Court did adopt that idea in the court's opinion. How does the national convention function in relation to the overall project of the Federal Society? What does it feel like to you to go to it every year?
1: Well, it is a function of bringing together a lot of people to share ideas and to get to know each other. And, and there's no question that conversations in the hallway are a key part of the convention. It's one of the reasons why we're very sad about this last year. We couldn't have an in-person one. We still have the substance, but it's, 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 it's not the same.
3: We, yes, problem with Zoom. There's no back channels on Zoom.
1: Yeah, it's it's just the, the way it is for right now. Um, I, I think it's, you know, an extremely important part of things. But I would also say that the vast majority of our activities are ones you do not read about. And the vast majority of our members have never been to a convention. Most of our activities do not take place in Washington, D.C. There are 200 chapters and students and 100 lawyers chapters and practice groups that all run all kinds of activities. We have over 1,000 meetings a year in law schools. And an awful lot of what happens that's really important and really valuable happens there. And Washington being Washington and convention being there, there's always some degree of political overlay that's much, much less in other places.
3: When you think about the relationship between those gatherings, especially the law school gatherings, and then the moments when you have a conservative president and a Senate majority of Republicans, and a raft of conservative judicial appointments. How do you think of the connection between those things? Because I'll tell you from the standpoint of students, both when I was a student and when I see my own students, they see a close connection. They think if I go to these events, I'll meet the right people, I'll know who the right judges are to clerk for, if I then do really well in law school, it's not enough just to go, you also have to be smart, then I have a good shot by putting federal society on my resume of signaling to the judge where I am on the political spectrum, getting a clerkship for those judges, and then entering the kind of core group of highly credentialed, highly smart, elite young lawyers, and then ending up as one of those judges someday. So I think that's how it looks to a great extent from the students' perspective. How does it look from the organization's perspective?
1: I'm, I'm trying to think how to answer that, you know, reasonably accurately because that is certainly something which happens in some cases. Look, I think the other, the one component there in terms of federal site types that you didn't mention is a pretty deep interest in public policy and. You know, a belief in a general set of ideas, which, as you know, there are wide differences within the federal society, but a belief in a general set of ideas that cause you to be motivated more in that way, less in some other ways. I mean, the wisecrack we've encountered from time to time when we've talked about there not being as many federal society types teaching law schools that should be is, well, you know, these conservatives are just more interested in earning money. I just don't think empirically that's quite right. I mean, there's are as interest in earning money as people are across the board, but I, I think there's an awful lot where that's not there.
3: Yeah, there are also fewer. I mean, just to be very clear about it, when I have a brilliant young law student in a class and I don't know what the student's politics are, and the student comes to me to get to know me or to become a research assistant or to discuss something in class, as I get to know the person over time, I always, I never ask directly, but I always think in the back of my mind, gee, I wonder if this person's politics are roughly speaking liberal, in which case they're in the majority and mm-hmm. they could still get a great clerkship, but it's not going to be simple. There's a ton of competition. And if they're a very brilliant student and are pretty conservative, I actually rest easy because I know that this person is going to get a great clerkship. Just as a statistical matter, there are not as many at elite law schools Students in total and certainly as a therefore as a percentage of the total number of the really top students. There are fewer conservatives There are fewer federal society members than there are kind of mainstream liberals and so You know part of the reason that there are fewer law professors is Not just what people choose to do, but just the raw numbers are smaller
1: Mm -hmm. There's probably some of that and uh, there's also been some change over time because there was quite a period of time where I think in the early days of the federal society federal side type students had a tough time getting good clerkships, you know, for some of the same reasons you're saying they're doing very well right now.
3: Right. There were fewer conservative judges and now there are lots of conservative judges.
1: Right. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, that's that that swings back and forth. And of course, many, many judges don't pay any attention to political philosophy and hiring and many others pay some.
3: It's a real range. Yep. But yes, we'll be right back.
2: That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic.
3: Let's talk about differences of opinion, which you mentioned, Gene, as among federalists. And I know many people told us in the course of the research for the podcast and the book that some of these disagreements were there from the beginning. But broadly speaking, It seems to me that most members of the Federalist Society or close affiliates share the commitments that Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, had to three core ideas. Originalism in interpreting the Constitution, textualism in interpreting statutes, and judicial restraint as a kind of overarching guideline for judges, avoiding reaching out to strike down statutes when it can be avoided, and trying to do as little as possible as judges, unless the law or the Constitution squarely mandates that they do otherwise. Do you think that those three principles remain the overall or overarching core of the judicial philosophy that is roughly associated with the federal society?
1: In the broadest sense, it's a reasonable statement. I would say the judicial restraint part is the diciest of the three. There's been a split all along on that. Libertarians be much more dubious about it. And the term remains a dicey term. What is a judge supposed to do if the judge thinks something's unconstitutional? In the last 10 things that have come before him, all he thinks are unconstitutional. He's supposed to say after he's to overturn five of them, the next five need to be more restrained. You know, I mean, that's sort of one of the questions that can come up for a judge. So I think that's less crystal clear, although it's definitely a factor that would be considered. I think the originalism is not universal. An element of it is in our statement of purpose, but it's certainly not universal and not universal amongst our members. But it is it is widely believed and probably textualism, the same basic thing is true. But once again, there are degrees of both. And there's also lots of battles within originalism, as you know. Uh, And as it becomes very clear in some of the court cases that come up, look look for example at Bostock.
3: Well, let's talk about Bostock. That's a perfect example. That's the case decided by the Supreme Court in the summer of 2020 about the meaning of Title VII, the anti-discrimination provision of the Civil Rights Act that says there may be no workplace discrimination because of sex. And in that case, a six to three majority of the court, in an opinion written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, a Trump appointee, and joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, and then the other, at the time, four liberals on the court, held that the words because of sex incorporate discrimination against gay and trans people. And on the other side, the three dissenters were very, very pointed in saying that they thought that this decision was a betrayal of justice scalia's principles of following the text of the statute and for his part justice Gorsuch, in his opinion said pretty clearly i'm just following the text of the statute i'm just reading the words so that was an example of a deep disagreement Mm -hmm. among conservatives what's your sense of how that what are the reverberations of bostock right now not just in the federal society's circles but more broadly in conservative legal thought
1: well, I'm going to take it more broader than just Bostock. Okay. Um, I think you're going to see that coming up periodically. And I think you're going to see differences amongst originals periodically. I mean, the two strongest originals on the court, Thomas and Scalia, definitely differed on occasion.
3: Rare occasion. I mean, I teach the handful of cases where they where they disagreed yeah. Yeah. in writing.
1: Well, they're, they're yeah, they're interesting. But I, I'm just saying even, even those two mm-hmm. differ. And you're going to see that from time to time. But one of the things I'm actually gonna jump here to what I was getting to in your Please. You know, things in your, your book, which I did enjoy lots of, but the sort of theme you have about, well, the federal side done these various things, but right now it's heading into this period of a lot of tension and possibly breaking up to some degree. Mm-hmm. And there are two themes that seem to me to be being developed. One is the theme that the federal society has and this is touched on a little bit in your thing, that maybe it's gotten more interested in results than in ideas or something like that seemed to be a partial theme.
3: Well, I don't, I don't think that that of the organization generally, I just think that that could be one of the lines that is posed in a, in a situation like the Bostock case. So clearly Justice Gorsuch, I don't know what his private views are, but consistent with the rest of his jurisprudence, which is very conservative, this was a shocking outcome And Justice Gorsuch didn't care about that. He wasn't being result, it seems to me very probable he was not being results-oriented in holding in favor, effectively, of gay and trans people. That seems like I'm gonna follow textualism wherever it leads me. But then on the other hand, you have voices, and I think of Senator Josh Hawley, who gave a very pointed speech on the floor of the Senate in response to the decision, saying, and I'm paraphrasing him, but we have the exact quote in the book. He said, if this is where legal conservatism is going, Legal conservatism is dead, as we know it, because this is an outrageous outcome. Senator Hawley's speech was pointedly about results.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess one of the things that struck me a little bit is there's simultaneously a little bit of the question about being results-oriented and a little bit of the question about, well, there's this divide in terms of um, some of the federal society people or link the federal side seem to differ greatly from some other ones, mm-hmm. and those two are are sort of in conflict. And essentially, I would say the second point tells the lie of the first one. Mm-hmm. That is, the fact of the matter is that the type of disagreements, not necessarily Bostock particularly, I, I always hesitate to focus on one case because. Cases are fact-specific for the specific case, and they, they may not be a, a much more general trend. But the differences on specific cases, you know, reflect exactly what the organization has emphasized over time, which is being serious about it, is discussing them, debating them. We know we won't always agree, nor do we aspire to always agree. We do aspire to generate serious conversation and generate, you know, understanding that the American Constitution and the principles enshrined in it are the best way us human beings have yet devised for uh, governing a country. And what, keep that strong by vigorous discussion and debate about it, but still paying attention to what the text actually says. And if the text is really a problem, if it's really wrong, and you got a consensus that's wrong, you amend it. And every time somebody says, well, gee, you can't amend this, it's usually because the country is pretty split. You know, if you have a situation where everybody really thinks something, drawing, if one of the, if some horror, you know, if Brown versus Board were, I, I shouldn't say this on tape because it's being misquoted, mis- mis- but if Brown versus Board were somehow reversed by the court, it would be passed into law instantly. Uh, or, and not passed into law instantly, but probably there'd be a constitutional amendment instantly. You know, but most of the things everybody agrees on, and, and you know, the Constitution's not going to be
3: I hear you. And I hope you're right that we as a country would be moral enough to reenact the idea that separate is inherently uh, is inherently unequal if it ever were to come to that. You know, heaven forbid. It but I want to yeah. focus on, though, what you were just saying, which I think is really interesting and, and important. And it's this, you know, your statement of purpose makes it really clear that the purpose of the judiciary, its province and duty is to say what the law is and not what it should be. And that proposition assumes that we can say what the law is and distinguish that from what the law should be. I mean, it, it's a kind of commitment not just to doing it right, but to it being possible to do it right. If you didn't think it were possible to do it right, you'd be a bunch of liberal relativists like the people I hang out with, right? <laughs> so you can't hold that for you. You have to think it is possible to do it right. And then you get a case, and again, we could use Bostock just as an example, but you get a case where, the text is hard to interpret. It says, because of sex. And on the one hand, you have some conservative justices, and I would say the Justice Court, such as not just any old conservative, but making a bid to inherit Justice Scalia's role as you know leading intellectual conservative on the court. I don't know whether he'll succeed, but he's definitely trying. Saying, I read these words to mean that a protection that was undreamt of by the drafters of this law in 1964, they were not thinking of gay rights and they certainly were not thinking of trans people's rights, is nevertheless entailed by these words. And then you have other conservatives like Justice Alito saying, oh, you must be kidding me. It can't be that the meaning of the words, what the law is rather than what the law should be, is entailed in this case by something that was unimagined by the people who wrote it. And you know, at the level of analysis of what the people intended, he's certainly correct, right? And so for Justice Alito, this decision by conservatives, including two conservatives, is activism. It's the thing that the federal society's statement of purpose is against. And on the other side, it's not activism. It's dictated by the text. It's an exact embodiment of what the federal society is supposed to stand for. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, in a world where those two views exist, sure, you could say, well, we're a big tent. We have room, you know, Justice Korsuch will be just as welcome at the annual convention as will Justice Alito, and I'm sure that's true. But they can't both be right, and they can't both be right that what they're doing is saying what the law is and not what it should be. I mean, that's a real disagreement.
1: Yeah, there is probably no theory of law or much of anything else that's worthwhile. Where you would, where you couldn't have serious debates about exactly what's contained in it. In other words, I don't find that surprising. I mean, I, I don't want to focus a suggestion on Bostock where you know clearly amongst conservatives, Gorsuch's opinion is a minority opinion. But it's there are all kinds of cases which come up where you know there, there'll be differing views, and both will think they're right, and that's fine. The problem is you want to have a framework within which judges generally try to work. And that's sort of where I think that whole range of federalists, and I'd like to think a bunch of people who aren't necessarily federalists, operate.
3: The Federalist Society, I think you'll agree, was in some way born out of a sense of embattlement. And in its mm-hmm. early years, it was very self-conscious of being a minoritarian movement in a legal establishment that was you know, heavily liberal. And over your time in the organization, you've seen that change, as you guys have become the establishment. And then, in a sense, during the Trump years, you hit the jackpot. Six of the current Supreme Court justices of nine are either current or one-time members of the organization, and huge numbers of judges on the courts of appeal. And your one-time colleague, Leonard Leo, took a leave from the Federal Society to go and advise the Trump administration on judicial appointments, and some people said, imprecisely, but maybe truly at some level, that Trump had outsourced appellate judicial selection to the Federal Society. And certainly, we got an enormous number of Federal Society-affiliated judges on the bench. I mean, you couldn't imagine a greater success than what you've achieved. I don't think during the, the Trump administration. So, what's next? I mean, what remains for the organization after having, you know, gone from being the margin to the all-powerful, you know, actors? you know, what do you do for an encore?
1: Well, I mean, uh, in one sense, you underestimate maybe some people's imagination. Um, um, but more seriously, look, I mean, you already stated one huge area, the law schools. And, you know, we have a very, very long way to go to create from the standard, say, of the, of the national political scene, a balance in the law schools. That's That's one huge area.
3: How do you do that, by the way? What is the sort of Since you guys had a 30-year strategy that worked for the judiciary, my guess is it'll now work for the law schools. But how do you do it?
1: I admire your confidence. I mean, what we try to do and what we very much hope will work is the same sort of things we've done all along, which is trying to foster this type of debate and discussion. And we do think that will persuade a lot of people over time, to the extent you can get ideas fairly heard. I would say that one other thing that causes some confusion is all the emphasis on judges, which are in the judiciary, which is extremely important. But there are all kinds of other aspects of law and the impact of law in society, where there's all kinds of discussions of regulation, how and what the role of law should be in sort of guiding the country in certain ways, Um, all the debates about the laws of moral force, the question of leaving people free to do what they wanna do, even when you think it's a mistake. There's a whole battle about elites versus sort of the average person in terms of there are a lot of elites who think, you know, really most people don't fully understand a lot of these things and they need help. And then there are a lot of people who will say, they should make their own decisions and uh, yeah, give them information, but don't try to force them. So there are all those battles and discussions.
3: How do you respond to the view that's sometimes taken by critics of the Federal Society, especially from the left, that because of your funders, you inevitably end up pushing a view that is consonant with corporate interests in some way? I mean, I'm sure you have an answer to that. Well, I, I, actually, I don't think it's true. Well, that's that's part of the answer. So say more about that. Um,
1: I mean, uh, if you look at big business right now in the, in the country, it's not at all clear that pushing in the in a, quote, conservative or, or libertarian direction. But we have a pretty basic rule. We neither seek nor take funds that, you know, we, we make it pretty clear the type of things we do. If people want to fund that, we're delighted. If they don't want to fund that, then find somewhere else to get. You know, we, we don't take restricted grants to do X, Y, and Z. We might take a restricted grant to have a discussion of tech policy or something. But We wouldn't take a restricted grant to have it more limited than that. And, uh, you know, if we end up having discussions and whoever the donor is decides they're unhappy, they don't give to us again. And that's fine. That's their decision. But, you know, in part, the people involved in this went into it because of the ideas and because of the commitment to the ideas. I guess I'm probably the person who's been, you know, most committed in terms of being the CEO and being, you know, having a heavy fundraising role. It wouldn't make sense to me to try to raise more money by doing things that I don't think are consistent with what we really want.
3: Mm-hmm. So you're mission-driven, and then if people want to fund that, they come along. And that's, right. that's and, the answer and, that you give, yeah.
1: And very consciously so. And the, the people we have, anybody we have who's helping us on fundraising or development, we make that those instructions clear.
3: Another way of putting that would be that if the critics are saying the reason that you take view X and Y that's conservative is, is who's funding you, you're saying it's the other way around. We have those views. We actually are those things. We actually are conservatives and libertarians. And then people come and fund us because they like what we think.
1: I would also say one other thing, anybody who looks at corporate donations, they're philosophically spread across the map. Yes. There's very little indication that, you know, you can make more of that argument with, with foundations. I mean, it's interesting that sometimes there are questions about, well, we, your donors are um, uh, most of our donors are listed in any report, but we do have a few who've requested anonymity and we have a number who've given through a couple of donor advised funds. And I'd say a couple things about that, because I know this question comes up, so I'll deal
3: with it. Yeah, it's a good good opportunity.
1: Uh, One is that people request anonymity for probably three basic reasons. There are some who request anonymity for something closer to the idea of, you know, well, they're just trying to hide exactly what they're giving because I think people won't approve it or will hurt their business or hurt them in some way or other. A second reason is because They don't want a bunch of other people coming and asking them for money. And if they're giving, particularly if they're giving sizable amounts to a few organizations and it's listed, everybody in the world is going to be knocking on their door and they don't want that. And the third reason is there's a widespread view, particularly in religious areas, but not exclusively, that, you know, it's not universal, but a widespread view that donations are... We do this for the good that we hope we will be doing. We don't do it for personal aggrandizement. I'm not saying that people who do, who enlisted are doing it for personal aggrandizement, but that's a view of some donors too, mm-hmm. so.
3: What percentage do you think roughly of, of your donations are anonymous or in one form or another?
1: You know, it's an interesting question. Um, it makes a big difference whether you count the donor advised funds or not.
3: We'll say count them and give me a ballpark.
1: I count them, I don't know, um, might be a quarter or something like that, maybe a little bit more, not much more. And the other thing is, if somebody says, "Well, you know, you're you're hiding the ball because you," uh, some of the donors who don't trust, I don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. I wish I did, but right. I don't. Right. So you know, they they can't real real
3: anonymity. Influence. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. I can't have
1: very much influence on me when I don't know who they are.
3: Gene, last question for you. For twenty years, so not all, but a good chunk of the life of the Federal Society. Liberals have been saying, we have to have our own federalist society. And yet the American Constitution Society and other organizations that have tried haven't, by common consensus, really gotten close to having the kind of impact or influence that you have had. What are they missing? What's the secret sauce that your imitators, your self-conscious imitators, have not managed to pull off?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of factors. One is that We are kind of the only game in town for the type of ideas we're talking about in law. There are so many other groups on the left that are pursuing somewhat similar things. And I don't think inherently one or the other strategy is better. I have no problem at all with sort of diversification in that kind of way. I think that's been one factor. I I think the second factor goes to the core of what we do, which is in, in spite of questions being raised about it. We are an organization that does not take positions. We are an organization that's serious about debate and discussion. I think we were able to attract a lot of people who may not think they necessarily agree with a lot of the things many of our members think, but think, boy, it's an interesting place to be and to discuss ideas. When ACS was, American Constitution Society was first started, I talked with two different executive directors there who came to me saying, you know, gee, what, you know, what, basically any, any thoughts? And I was happy to give them. That, that was
3: very collegial of you.
1: Well, I thought, I actually, I can prove this because I have a quote in the New York Times, that effect back when the ACS was started. But I thought and believed that if they would be an organization on the left, committed to debate and discussion in the way we were, I thought it'd be a really good thing for both the left and the country. And I think the more, more we can have civil serious energetic and sharp debates and discussions not of the old crossfire line where people yell at each other but of lines where people really are trying to exchange ideas i think all of us benefit and you know i certainly believe in the broad ideas uh, the federal society discussed. but i also believe that that type of discussion i think may help some many of those ideas but i think the extent it can spread more across society, I think it will help all of us.
3: Gene, I want to thank you for your candor and for the conversation. And thank you very much for, for joining us. And I look forward to speaking again in the future sometime.
1: Thanks so much. Take care.
3: I was grateful to Gene Meyer for living up to the stated principles of the Federal Society and being willing to discuss openly challenges and questions around the Federalist Society, its funding, the way it operates, and the way it's going to operate in the future. I hope you found the conversation as engaging as I did. You can buy our new audiobook, Takeover, How a Conservative Student Club Captured the Supreme Court, on Pushkin's website, pushkin.fm, or on Audible, or wherever you get your audiobooks. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well deep background is brought to you by pushkin industries our producer is mo laborde our engineer is martin gonzalez and our showrunner is sophie crane mckibben editorial support from noam osband theme music by Luis guerra at pushkin thanks to mia lobel julia barton lydia jean cott heather Fain, carly Migliori, maggie taylor eric sandler and jacob weisberg you can find me on twitter at noah r feldman I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background.
0: Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh?
2: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country.
0: Heck yeah. And some waves. So we can go surfing.
2: (laughs) Ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm
0: in. Ah, ski slopes.
3: Let's
2: do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby!
3: Wait!
0: Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
2: You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new?